Our message is entitled, The Use of Hosea 11.1 in Matthew 2.15, One More Time. Let's ask God's blessing on His Word. Father, we ask that You would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what Your Word says to us. We thank You for Your inerrant Word. It gives us great confidence to preach it and proclaim it. Be with us now in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew's use of Hosea 11.1 in chapter 2 and verse 15 has been greatly debated. Why don't we refresh ourselves with regard to what Matthew says? If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2 and verses 13 to 15. In verse 12, it says, Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they, the wise men, departed for their own country by another way. Then chapter 2 and verse 13, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Now this passage, this use of Hosea by Matthew, is notoriously difficult. It's a very debated text, especially that, that phrase, they were there until the death of Herod in order that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet should be fulfilled. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Why has this been a notoriously difficult text? I remember one time after speaking on this text and talking about how difficult it was, someone raised their hand and says, I I don't see any difficulty at all. And, um, well, uh, that's contrary to uh, the debate itself. Though you'll see at the end of the message, I don't see a problem either. But we will see. There are three very difficult problems. Number one. Number two. (laughs) And number three. I'm glad you got those points. It's the key to the whole talk. We planned all that. So three problems. Number one. The first is that the verse in Hosea, out of Egypt have I called my son, is a reference to the Exodus. It's a past historical reference. And so many, even evangelicals who believe in inerrancy, ask, how can you take a verse that refers to a past event, the Exodus, and how can Matthew convert that to a fulfilled prophecy? Some would say hermeneutics in 101, if you did that, you would fail. That's a pretty tough problem. How can you take a historical reference and turn it into prophecy with a historical grammatical hermeneutic? Number two problem. That is what Hosea attributes to the nation Israel. Out of Egypt have I called my son. The son there is not referring to an individual. It's referring to the nation of Israel that came out of Egypt. 
Yet Matthew applies it to an individual. How can he do that? That seems to violate what that historical reference is saying. And then there's a final problem, a third problem. And that is Hosea 11.1 is quoted right at the point where the Holy Family is going into Egypt. Not coming out, but the text says this fulfilled. When they enter in, this fulfilled. The prophecy of Hosea, out of Egypt I'll call my son. Well, what's going on? You reversed it, Matthew. Didn't you notice that it said out of Egypt? And you're saying they're going into Egypt is the fulfillment. Now, in view of these problems, there have been a variety of responses. And almost everyone I'm going to refer to now claim to be evangelical, whatever that means. One commentator by the name of Peter Enns has said this passage, quote, is a parade example of the manner in which the New Testament uses the Old Testament. Especially, he says, in being interested in uh, not being interested in reproducing the meaning of the Old Testament text, but reading into the Old Testament foreign Christological presuppositions. So this commentator says that this is one of the best examples of a New Testament writer reading an alien idea into the Old Testament. That is, reading Christ into the Old Testament where you can't find Christ at all. Another commentator writing in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society said, quote, this passage is the most troubling case of New Testament exegesis of the Old Testament for many people. Others like D.M. Beagle, in the late 1960s have viewed the use of Hosea 11 just as a mere mistaken interpretation by Matthew and therefore uh, he, along with others who find it the same way, cannot hold to the inerrancy of the Scripture. And by the way, the use of the old and the new, there are a number of other passages that we could talk about where people have found difficulty and they have said, this keeps me from believing in inerrancy. Along these lines, Eugene Boring, who's not an evangelical, but he has said, quote, that Matthew's use of Scripture in Matthew 1 and 2, including the Hosea 11 quotation, is, quote, in contrast with their obvious original meaning and the changes that Matthew makes in the text itself make him subject to the charge of manipulating the evidence in a way that would be unconvincing to anyone except someone who already agreed with Matthew's presuppositions. Others have attributed to Matthew a a Qumran-like revelatory insight into the full meaning of Hosea 11.1. That is, they had the special revelatory insight that we we cannot reproduce. We don't have that insight anymore today. And uh, the New Testament writers were able to see it, but we are not. Still others, like Richard Longenecker, have understood Matthew to be employing an interpretative method used commonly in Judaism that was just flat wrong. And yet, the New Testament writers, they're part of their socially constructed hermeneutical Jewish culture. So, of course, when they interpret Scripture, they would have to interpret it the way the other Jews did, according to this faulty hermeneutic. A hermeneutic we cannot use today. But he says God does not inspire interpretive method. He only inspires conclusions. So the conclusions from this wrong interpretative method are right doctrine. And they're inspired. 
claims to hold to the full inspiration of the New Testament. In other words, Jesus and the apostles preached the right doctrine, but from the wrong text. Still others, with a new wrinkle, a postmodern wrinkle, have concluded that Matthew's interpretation of Hosea 11.1 is not to be considered correct by the interpretative standards that you and I would have, that we would try to carry out in our pastor study and preparing sermons. So they, they, they would not interpret according to the standards we think are right, but since it was part of an acceptable Jewish interpretative method, which modern scholars have no right to judge as wrong today. According to this postmodern view, the interpretative procedure, while strange, is to be seen as spirit-inspired and even to be seen as a pattern for the contemporary church to follow. How would that be? There's there's no method here. This particular commentator says there is no right method. Uh, We're all just traveling a path and need to encourage one another through the uh, 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 encouragement of, of the Spirit. And then from another perspective, some who hold to the full inerrancy of the Bible see that this interpretative procedure, for example, by Hosea, is not wrong, but is so unique that you and I should not dare try to reproduce it. Now, usually such conclusions are made because Matthew and other New Testament writers are being judged by what is often called a historical grammatical hermeneutic. And many would say there's no way you can apply, you can interpret uh, along the lines of that hermeneutic and, and, and follow what Hosea has done here. It doesn't seem like he is doing that. So this passage has posed a lot of problems, I hope you can see, for the doctrine of inerrancy. At, at least it has caused a number of people, including scholars, to say they could not firm the doctrine of inerrancy, especially as it's expressed in the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, which I was so happy to see in the booklet here uh, for the conference. Some have said, well, that, that statement, the Chicago Statement, is no longer relevant. We're living in a new age. What was made in 1978? What's happened between now uh, and, and back then? I don't think truth changes that much in that period of time. Now, what I want to talk about this morning or this afternoon, I guess we're in afternoon now, is to look at Hosea 11.1 in relation to its entire chapter in which it's found and the entire book. Now, in Hosea 11, if we were to read our passage, which Hosea quotes chapter 11 and verse 1, and if you want to turn, if you have your Bibles, to Hosea chapter 11... Verse 1 is the quotation by Matthew. And then in the following passage, you'll notice in verse 2, it says, The more they called them, that is the prophets, the more they went from them, they kept sacrificing to the Baals, burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know me. They did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man with bonds of love. I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. I have been and fed them. And the the point here in verses 2 to 5 is that they were not loyal to God. They did not respond to his gracious deliverance uh, of them from Egypt in covenant loyalty by being grateful. They sinned. They became idol worshipers. 
And in verses 6 through 7, uh, it says God's going to judge them, therefore, for rejecting uh, His grace and going after idols. But then in verses 8 through 9, God says, yes, I'm going to judge them, but not absolutely, not completely. And then uh, in verses 10 through 11, the end of the chapter, the chapter ends at verse 11, even though verse 12 is part of uh, chapter 11, it's the introduction to chapter 12. So the uh, chapter ends at verse 11, and in verses 10 through 11, we find that God's compassion, because He's not going to execute full judgment, He's going to exercise compassion, and, and, and what is the expression of that? He's going to restore them to Himself once again. Notice in verse 10, they will walk after the Lord, He'll roar like a lion, indeed He will roar, His sons will come trembling from the west. They'll come trembling like birds from Egypt. Like doves from the land of Assyria, I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. So that's the context. Now, let's try to understand what Matthew is doing, and let's use the three problems that I gave perhaps as a broad outline for the remainder of what I'm going to say. The first problem of our passage, how can the history, the historical reference of Hosea 11.1 about God bringing up Egypt uh, uh, bringing up Israel out of Egypt in the past, how can that be made into a prophecy that's fulfilled? How can Matthew do that? Well, we've seen that the end of the chapter uh, is saying that in the end time there'll be a restoration of Israel from several lands, including Egypt. Look at that important passage there in the beginning of verse 11. They'll come trembling like birds from Egypt. In the end time, Israel will come out of Egypt. In fact, even the lion imagery, you see that lion imagery in verse 10? They will walk after the Lord. He'll roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar. If we could have our first slide. And uh, you'll notice here that I have numbers. The book of Numbers on the left, chapter 23 and 24. And you'll notice the underlining. That underlining are the same phrases. You'll notice here, whereas here it says God will roar like a lion and uh, Israel will come uh, out from Egypt. And notice in chapter 23 of Numbers, it's rehearsing uh, uh, the fact that Israel's going to come out of Egypt. In the first Exodus, God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of a wild ox. Behold, a people rises like a lioness, and as a lion it lifts itself. It will not uh, lie down until it devours the prey. Then in chapter 24 is a recapitulation. They, they go over the same territory Moses does. But this time, it's about an individual who God, God is going to bring out. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And that is about the king. Uh, uh, or the leader of Israel coming out of Egypt. Numbers 24, 7 tells us. So the only places in all of Holy Scripture where you find out of Egypt and a lion image related to the, that deliverance is here in Hosea and in our passage. And what we find here, and this is crucial to understanding the New Testament use of the Old, you've got to understand first the Old Testament use of the Old Testament. And that's what's going on here. In fact, where did the New Testament writers get their hermeneutic? I think they got it from looking at the Old Testament itself. Now, later Old Testament writers interpreted earlier Old Testament parts, and we're going to see that, I believe, here. 
So we have here what I will call an illusion. Now, if you can isolate phrases that are found, a combination of them that are found nowhere else in all the Scripture except in two places, which you can here, chapters 23 and 24 and Hosea, you likely have an illusion. That's how you define an illusion. Unique phraseology found nowhere else except in the passages you're looking at. And if the theme is the same, you've got an illusion. Now, some would say that I'm a parallelomaniac. But I think that you can, you know, if you don't have a quotation, some would say, don't try to detect illusions. Well, um, if you notice the margins in your Bible, they'll give you the quotations, but they'll also give you a lot of illusions. And I think as pastors, this is something we really need to do to preach uh, the whole counsel of God if you're in the New Testament. See if there are any illusions to Old Testament text and bring those out. Why? Because you want to interpret Scripture by Scripture. And if you can isolate an illusion, that's very important. It's true sometimes maybe something isn't an illusion. It's just a general conceptual similarity. But here in this case, the language is so similar that uh, likely we have an illusion. There is a little problem, though. Some would say, it looks like Hosea is playing fast and loose with numbers. Why? Because... Notice it's the people and the leader who are like a lion in numbers, whereas in Hosea, it's God. He'll roar like a lion. He'll roar. His sons will come trembling. See, what's going on here? Well, notice that God has given metaphors of power. He has the horns like a wild ox, and that's mentioned twice, and he gives the people the power to be a lion. Well, if he's given the people the power to be a lion, he certainly has that power himself The people are, in a sense here, corporately identified with God. And so it's appropriate probably that uh, Hosea also can attribute the lion image to God, just as he attributed the the wild ox image. And so since God is the one who gives uh, the power of the lion to the people in coming out of Egypt, he himself will have that power in delivering them in this end-time exodus. So... So what difference does it make? My wife will often say, I'll find a a new illusion, and I'll get all excited about it, and she'll deflate me by saying, well, so what difference does that make? And, well, here's the difference. This is an end-time exodus that's being talked about here. And it's based on the references to the past exodus in Numbers. We see that Matthew already, you see is seeing that how Israel's history began in a first exodus, it will conclude in a last exodus. The past exodus is a pattern for a future exodus. So that the first exodus is a foreshadowing of the last exodus. Hosea sees that these numbers illusions about the past coming out of Egypt together with the lion image will be recapitulated again in the end time future. The past exodus is seen to foreshadow a later end time exodus. We call this typology. Now, what is typology? It's almost a word like allegory and other terms that we're sometimes unsure about the definition. When I use the word typology, that Hosea is seeing the numbers, the first exodus is a type of this future exodus of Israel. It means that there is an event of an institution or a person in the sacred record of Scripture. 
Secondly, it corresponds to something in the New Testament, or later in the Old in this case. And thirdly, it is something that is escalated. That, that thing in the New Testament that corresponds to something in the Old is greater. For example, in John 19, it says that Jesus fulfills the Passover lamb ordinance of Exodus 12. Well, that means that uh, uh, certainly he's greater than the Passover lamb, which was a type of him. And these uh, types foreshadow. They have a foreshadowing nature. And finally, they're they're retrospective. After the death and resurrection of Christ and and, and the coming of the Spirit, usually you can see these types more clearly. That, That doesn't mean they're not types in the Old Testament, but they're more clearly seen. So historicity, correspondence, foreshadowingness, escalation, and the retrospective aspect. That, that's what we mean here by typology. And in this case, the first exodus foreshadows the second exodus. Uh, Hosea is already operating, you see, with a typological hermeneutic that Matthew will operate with. So the main point or goal of Hosea 11, 1 through 11, let's come back to the context of this passage. And by the way, what I'm trying to do is, is to dig into Hosea and to see how it might shed light on these problems. One commentator has said, people like Beale think if you just try hard enough, usually you'll find the answers to the problems of the old and the new. And it was said tongue-in-cheek and really in a somewhat subtle mocking way. And my answer to that is, yes, I completely agree with you. That's true. I think that's correct. That if you work at it, that in God's Word, uh, we will find the answers there. Not always. We can't solve the answer to everything. And thank the Lord that uh, to believe in inerrancy, you don't have to find the answers to everything. We trust our sovereign God in those areas where we cannot solve the problems. Now, remember that the overall meaning of chapter 11 is to indicate that God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, which led to their ungrateful unbelief, is not the final word about His deliverance of them. Though they'll be judged, God will still deliver them again, as we see here. So the chapter begins with the exodus out of Egypt and ends with the exodus out of Egypt. The pattern of the first exodus at the beginning of Israel's history will be repeated again. Now, it's unlikely that Hosea saw that it was just coincidental that there's going to be a future exodus and, uh, and, and, and that there was a first exodus. So th- these are just two events. That they're not related to one another. It's highly probable that he saw them as related. And under God's divine design, they were to be recapitulated at the time of the nation's latter day Exodus. And again, our uh, passage, I think, shows that here. So mention of a first exodus from Egypt outside of 11.1 occurs not only here. um, You'll notice that throughout the book, Hosea again and again will refer to a past exodus. And again and again, he'll refer to a future exodus outside of chapter 11. And we're going to see that all this does is to enhance what we've already seen in chapter 11. That the reason Hosea makes so many references to a first exodus and to a future exodus is because there's a connection between the two. One, the first, foreshadows the second. Now, you'll notice here 
The first exodus out of Egypt is, is mentioned outside of chapter 11 and verse 1 in chapter 2. Notice she'll sing there, Israel will, as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. Referring to the past exodus, though this could also be put in a column for a future exodus. The whole point of saying uh, uh, that she will sing there as in the days of her youth. That's future based on the past exodus. Chapter 12, verse 13, but by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt. And by a prophet, he was kept. Another reference to a past exodus. Uh, Next slide. Chapter 12, verse 9, I've been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. An implied reference to the first exodus. And so chapter 13, 4, I've been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. Now let's look at the references elsewhere in the book outside of chapter 11 to a future exodus. Chapter 7 and verse 11. And what you find is sometimes you have references to Israel coming out of Egypt, and sometimes just a reference that they'll return there. I mean, they've got to return in order to come back out. So chapter uh, 7, verse 11, um, they call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. They want to go to Egypt uh, for refuge. Uh, chapter seven sixteen. 16, um, this will be their derision in the land of Egypt. At some point, Israel's going to go back into Egypt. Let's go back. Uh, let's go forward. Next slide. Chapter 8, verse 13, they will return to Egypt. Chapter 9, verse 3, Ephraim, another word for Israel, will return to Egypt. Next slide. Um, Egypt will gather them up. In chapter 1 and verse 11 is one of the most explicit references to a future exodus. And they, Israel, will go up from the land. This is not their land. This is the land of Egypt. And, of course, in our passage... In chapter 11 and verse 11, they will come trembling like birds from Egypt. Why have I pedantically gone through all of these references to a past exodus and a future exodus? To show that while you already have that within chapter 11, outside the chapter, it's immersed in the whole book. First, future exodus. Why? Because Hosea is immersed with the idea that the first exodus was a foreshadowing of a future exodus. If one were to have asked Hosea if he believed that the last things, the future exodus, were modeled on the first exodus, he would say yes. I think he would. If you then ask Hosea if he believed that God was sovereign over history and that God had designed that the first exodus from Egypt was to be a historical pattern that foreshadowed a second exodus from Egypt, would he not likely have answered, yes, I think so. Matthew understood Hosea in this way, especially using the language of the first Exodus from Hosea 11.1 in the light of the broader and the immediate context of chapter 11, the broader context of Hosea and the immediate context. He saw that Hosea was immersed with the idea that the first Exodus was a type of foreshadowing of the last Exodus. Of course, he follows that Hosean hermeneutic. What better language to use for Hosea's prophecy of the second Exodus and the beginning of its fulfillment in Jesus than the language already at hand describing the first Exodus from chapter 11 and verse 1 of Hosea. Matthew's use of Hosea 11.1, therefore, I think is typological. He understood it in the light of chapter 11 of all of Hosea and uh, After I had concluded this, um, I found Dwayne Garrett, who teaches at Southern Seminary in Old Testament. In his commentary on Hosea, he said this, and I was happy to find it. 
He said, quote, we need look no further than just chapter 11 of Hosea to understand that Hosea too believed that God followed patterns in working with his people. Here, the slavery in Egypt is the pattern for a second period of enslavement in an alien land. They will return to Egypt, chapter 11, verse 5. And the exodus from Egypt is the type for a new exodus, he says, in verses 10 through 11. That's the application of typological principles to Hosea 11, 1 by Matthew is in keeping with the nature of what Hosea's own exegetical method is. He's just following that method. Now, what we find then, we could summarize chapter 11 in this way. Verse 1, out of Egypt. Verse 5, they'll return to the land of Egypt. Verse 11, they'll come out of Egypt again. All of the chapter is honing in. All of its chapter 1 is moving, not just to the judgment, not just to God's uh, uh, saying that judgment will not be uh, absolute, but it's moving. The narratival climax of this chapter is out of Egypt. Israel will come in the future. So it's all inextricably linked. The past reference to the Exodus in chapter 11, verse 1, is inextricably linked and is moving forward to this reference to the future Exodus. Now, a second problem in our passage. I think that uh, it should be sufficient now that Matthew is following Hosea's typological method. Uh, Many think that the New Testament's typological method is new, and it's reading in things into the Old Testament. No, we've used a grammatical historical hermeneutic, I think, to see that that was Hosea's method. Matthew was following it. Typology, in my opinion... Yes, it's part of biblical theology, but I think it can be detected by historical grammatical interpretation. Now, in my own understanding of historical grammatical, it involves that the writers of the Old and New Testament were aware that they were under inspiration. That's very important. Some don't interpret it that way. That is historical grammatical hermeneutic. Now, the second problem. Many commentators have observed that the placement of the quotation of Hosea 11.1 in Matthew 2.15 appears to be out of order, since the quotation is appended directly only to the report of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus going to Egypt and not coming out of Egypt. So it seems a wrong placement. Why would you quote that out of Egypt if I call my son when they're not coming out of Egypt? They're going into Egypt. Accordingly, many commentators have noted that the quotation would seem to have been better placed directly after chapter 2, verse 21, when they do actually return. They come back out of Egypt into the promised land. And some commentators have seen, however, that, well, maybe this is just an anticipation of that, and that, that may be the case. But I think that there is more to it than that. We observed in, uh, on our slides that again and again, It says that Israel's going to return to Egypt, and then they'll come out of Egypt. Both the ideas are there. And so I think what Matthew is doing by using Hosea 11.1 is to kind of suck up the reference to, in chapter 11, verse 5, and elsewhere that Israel would return. So it begins, the context of Hosea begins to be fulfilled, and they're going into Egypt, and then when they come out, It begins to be consummately fulfilled. 
One commentator has summarized the storyline of Exodus, of, of Hosea 11 in this manner. The story comes to its end in verse 11. It begins with out of Egypt, then back into Egypt in 11.5, then um, out of Egypt again. By the way, in 11.5, some of your Bibles may say they will not return to Egypt. Uh, and it is, it is a, uh, uh, a translation and text critical problem. Um, I've written an article in Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society on this passage where I, I argue that it should be read as they will return to Egypt. That's just a, per, a parenthetical note. So, the narration of the family going to Egypt is viewed as an inauguration of this passage, the coming back out of Egypt is the consummation of it. The third problem, which is really uh, a greater problem, and that is, how can you apply uh, a reference to the nation? Out of Egypt, I call my son, that is the nation Israel. How can you apply that to one individual? Some consider this very problematic. Matthew is seen by some as distorting the original meaning of chapter 11 of verse 1. If you use a grammatical historical Hermeneutic, because it's the nation. How can you apply it to an individual? However, the application of what was applied to the nation in chapter 11 and verse 1, with Matthew applying that to the one person, Jesus, may have been sparked by the narrative that we saw in Numbers. Can we put Numbers back up again, please? Keep going and keep going. There we go. Remember, chapter 23 was about the people coming out of Egypt, and chapter 24 was about the king coming out of Egypt. 24-7 makes it clear. It's a leader. And they're identified. And if Hosea has this passage in mind in chapter 11, which he does, then it's entirely appropriate to apply to an individual leader of Israel, what was true of the people. What's true of the people, true of the leader. What's true of the leader is true of the people. The potential to apply corporate language to the individual is also suggested by Hosea 1, 10 through 11. Turn there with me in your Bibles. Hosea 1, 10 through 11, if you have them. This is another reference to a future exodus. Yet, verse 10, the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. It will come about in that place where it is said to them, you're not by people. It will be said to them, you're sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. If we could uh, flip on down to the last two slides now. You'll see, Hosea 11, 1, uh, 1, 11 says they'll go up from the land. That's the land of Egypt. And actually, it's an uh, uh, allusion to uh, Exodus uh, 1, 10, which is a reference to the first Exodus. And here we have our, our text from Hosea 2, 15. She went up from the land of Egypt. It makes clear this is going up from the land of Egypt. Even the statement at the end of 111, and they'll go up from the land then, is a reference to the land of Egypt. This is another future Exodus text. Now, you'll notice in chapter 1 and in verse 
11. Read it again. The sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will point for themselves one leader. The word is Rosh in Hebrew, one head. So here again we find there's a leader of the people. How appropriate to apply what's true of the people to the leader and what's true of the leader to the people. Could Matthew not have had such a biblical theological reading of Hosea? He may have understood that there was a link between our passage in chapter 1, 10 and 11, and Hosea 11. Now, very interestingly, look at this phrase here. Go to the next slide. Notice that in your Bibles, we read at the end of verse 10, Israel, they're sons of the living God. That's who they are in coming out in this future exodus. And remember Matthew 16, 16, the Messiah the Son of the living God. That does not occur in Mark, does not occur in Luke or John or anywhere else in the New Testament. It occurs right here, the Son of the living God. It is likely that this is a reference identifying the Messiah Jesus with the sons of the living God. The only place where you find this phrase and this phrase, the only difference, singular and plural, is in these two texts. It, again, is likely an illusion. So what difference does it make? What it means is that Matthew himself saw that Jesus was identified with the sons of the living God. What's true of them is true of him. What's true of him is true of them. How natural is it then for Matthew to follow this hermeneutic, this interpretative method of Hosea, and to see that what's true of the nation is true of an individual, that is, the Messiah. And that's why he can apply it to the individual Jesus. There's one last reason for why Matthew would apply what's true of the nation to an individual. I mentioned to you Dwayne Garrett. He's got a fine commentary on Hosea. If you're preaching on Hosea at some point, I highly recommend his commentary. He has analyzed the use of Genesis and Hosea. In other words, he's worked on how the Old Testament's used in the Old, how Hosea uses Genesis. And what he has found is that sometimes the patriarchs are portrayed negatively and sometimes positively from Genesis and Hosea. For example, the iniquity of Israel in the present involves her following the same pattern of disobedience as that of Adam in chapter 6 and verse 7 of Hosea. Or of Jacob, following the disobedience of Jacob in chapter 12, 2 to 5. And yet the promise made to the individual Jacob, quote, to make your seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered because of multitude, is applied positively to this future exodus. Look look again at chapter 1 and verse 10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it will come about in that place where it was said to them, you're not my people. It will be said to them, you're the sons of the living God. Now, what happens is, the individual patriarchs, Garrett observes, are taken and applied to the nation, both negatively and positively in Hosea. In other words, Hosea is going from the one to the many. What's true of the one patriarch is true of the many, either negatively or positively. And then Garrett says, Matthew is using the same hermeneutic. He's just going from the many, Israel, to the one, Jesus, using the same kind of interpretive approach that Hosea was using. So Matthew contrasts Jesus as the son in Hosea 2.15 with Hosea's son. The latter who came out of Egypt, 
was not obedient. Hosea's son, Israel, was not obedient. was judged, would be restored. While the former did what Israel should have done, what they were uh, held accountable for doing, being obedient and faithful to God. Jesus came out of Egypt. He was perfectly obedient, did not deserve judgment, but suffered it anyway for guilty Israel and the world in order to restore them to God. Matthew portrays Jesus recapitulating the history of Israel because he sums up Israel in himself. Since Israel disobeyed, Jesus has come to do what they were accountable for doing. He must retrace Israel's steps up to the point they failed and then continue to obey and succeed in the mission that they should have carried out. So he's got to start in Egypt and go from there. The attempt to kill the Israelite infants, the journey of Jesus and his family back into Egypt, back to the promised land again is the same basic pattern of old. So Jesus does what Israel was obligated to do. So the upshot of what we've said this afternoon is that attempts to show contrary to a number of scholars that Matthew is using the Old Testament haphazardly, flying by the seat of his hermeneutical pants, if you will. Instead, Matthew is showing incredible interpretative sensitivity and biblical theological sensitivity to what Hosea was doing throughout the book and within chapter 11 with regard to the first exodus being a type of the second and of the people uh, uh, being led by the individual Messiah. It is from the quarry of the book of Hosea itself and Numbers 23 and 24 and especially chapter 11 that Matthew gleans everything he has expressed in the Hosea 11 quotation. Context is king, queen, prime minister. It's the key. So we can push back the question. Many would say, Matthew's typological exegesis is just not grammatical historical exegesis. Well, I think we can say um, through grammatical historical exegesis, we can see that and through a, a if you want to call it a literal approach, that has many different definitions, we can see that he's following Hosea's typological approach. Now we could ask, well, is Hosea's typological approach legitimate? And I don't have time to go into that. I think it is on a biblical theological level. I can't argue it here. But uh, the New Testament writers learn their interpretative method from the Old Testament. In this case, we can see that Matthew has learned his method from Hosea and is getting right at the intention of Hosea. When Hosea wrote out of Egypt, have I called my son? Yes, he was referring to a past historical episode, but in the context of chapter 11 and the whole book, he saw that that was going to be recapitulated. So the results of what we've said this afternoon about the use of Hosea 11 in Matthew 2 are an attempt to give a more in-depth illustration and confirmation of what the New Testament scholar R.T. France from England, what his assessment was over 30 years ago of the rich contextual background of the Old Testament behind the quotations in Matthew 2. Here, here's what R.T. France said in his commentaries on Matthew and the Gospels. I commend them highly to you. His book on Jesus in the Old Testament I also commend. Here's what he said. Matthew was deliberately composing a chapter rich in potential exegetical bonuses so that the more fully a reader shared and understood the Old Testament context, 
the more that reader was likely to derive from his reading, while at the same time there was a surface meaning sufficiently uncomplicated for even the most naive reader to follow, the, the, the new convert, maybe the Gentile convert. He says, the bonus meanings convey an increasingly rich and positive understanding of the person and role of the Messiah. And it's suggestive for those with eyes to see. So what we've looked at today is an example of a very difficult text in the use of the old and the new, and and there are others. This is one of the classic ones. A text that many consider to be a mistaken use of the Old Testament by Matthew, and therefore a very real and severe problem for the inerrancy of the Bible. But when it's studied carefully in its context of chapter 11, in the context of Hosea, and in the context of Numbers 23 and 24, that is in the context of the Old Testament canon, when it's studied carefully, such problems, I believe, vanish and actually reverse and give us greater confidence in the inerrancy of the Bible. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for Hosea and Matthew and Numbers. Thank you for all of your biblical authors and the inerrant word they've given us. We thank you for the clarity of Scripture, that we may preach it based on your inerrant word. And may you give us all confidence in that word that it will do the work of the Holy Spirit, not our work independent of you, but that you use the Word preached and taught to bring people to you and to build them up in you, not for our glory, but for yours we pray. Amen.